see the foundation of life, of what makes life valuable, what gives life value. And I think this is found in Genesis for believers. It starts in Genesis chapter one. If you're in Genesis chapter one, I want you to say the Bible is true. And I, this, so I, I want to harp on this. Bible is true. Culture is not always true, right? Society is not always true. Like they, they don't have, they have, they have viewpoints, but it's not always truth. The Bible is always true. So we want to look at God's word and see what God's word says about it. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now this, this passage of scripture right here is what separates humanity from the rest of creation. This is what separates humanity from the rest of uh, creation. We were created, humanity was created according to Genesis chapter one, 26 and 27, in the image of God. This is what theologians will refer to as the Imago Dei. It is the image of God. This is what gives us a value. Let me give you a definition of the Imago Dei. Matt Chandler says this about it. He says, the Imago Dei is God's investment in humanity of God-like glory and moral capacity to reign and rule over the earth as God's representatives. We have a moral, spiritual, and intellectual capacity that nothing else in creation has. We were fashioned in the image of God. We have a God-like nature, and no other part of creation in all of the universe has this. Now, I want you to let that sink in for a moment. I mean, think about the vastness of the universe and, the, and the, the glory of what we see when we think about the, the moon and the stars and the galaxies and the different solar systems that are out there. Just think about, you know, we have the universe that is, that is categorized in two ways, the known and the unknown. The known universe blows our ever-loving mind. And scientists would say, even the brightest minds in the world would say, we're just scratching the surface of the wonders of the universe. And here's, here's what should blow our mind, is that of all that's been created, on earth, in the heavens, and in the universe, no other part of creation has the fingerprints of God on their very soul. Humanity alone. And this is what gives us intrinsic value. This is what gives us worth. We've been made in the image of God. No other part of creation has this. Your horses, as smart as they are, do not have this. Your dogs, they are not made in the image of God. And Lord knows your cats aren't, right? You know I was going there. Don't email me cat people. The value, because of the image of God, like, like my daughter, my youngest has uh, animal allergies, so she, she gets around a dog, even those, I'm gonna have people, you get a hypoallergenic dog, even those make her eyes swell up, and then we get, you know, she just gets, you know, all messed up over it, eyes are running, she can't be around animals, very few, I think there's one dog that she's ever been around that she could actually pet and not have the re reaction, and, and I've never once, my kids have wanted a pet since she was born, like they've wanted a pet. And I've basically responded like this, like if we get a pet, we gotta give Micah away. And you laugh because you're like, you would never do that. Like if, I have people all the time tell me, a couple weeks ago, somebody say, hey, you need to get this dog. I'm like, ah, my daughter has these severe animal allergies. And I've never once had someone say, well, have you thought about giving her away so you can have a dog? Why is that? She was made in the image of God. And he, he, here's, here's the truth we've got we to rest in. Because of this, humanity being fashioned as God's representatives on planet Earth, listen, gives us an intrinsic value, a value that is wired into our personhood. There is therefore worthy, look, in humanity, every single person, all of humanity, image of God, therefore, dignity and respect and a right to life. And where does this intrinsic value and worth come from? It is rooted in the Imago Dei. It's the image of God stamped on the soul and his breath breathed in, giving life to all of humanity. 
And this gives every single human on the planet, no matter who they are, where they're from, what they look like, how old, how young, how gifted, this gives them intrinsic value that no other part of creation has. Now, here's the dilemma. Here's the question we've got to wrestle with now. Okay. I think we would agree that all of humanity is created in the image of God. So then the fundamental question we have to ask when it comes to the subject of abortion is, when does life begin for a human? When does human life begin? If all humanity has intrinsic value, then we need to discover when life for a human begins. Now here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see God's word is very clear on this subject. And again, I just wanna remind you, I'm not here to speak from a political perspective. I'm not here to speak from a personal opinion or some sort of an agenda. I I am a pastor. My job is to open God's word and tell the truth. And when the Bible says something about a particular subject, I always have to go with what God says about it, amen? Amen. So what does the word of God say about when human life begins? Look what it says here, and and let's give you a couple of verses here uh, to get started. Job chapter 31, verse 15. Listen to what Job says. Did not the one who made me in the womb make him? And did not the one fashion us in the womb? Now, Job is referring to his life. Now, I love this. Did not he who made me in the womb? In other words, Job is recognizing that he was himself even while he was in the womb. This is attributing personhood to the person in the womb. And then he gives that to someone else. He made us in the womb as well. So he's recognizing someone else in that as well, that that they were who they were even before they were physically born. They were who they were in the womb. Here's another one. Psalm 51, verse five, David is writing, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. This is talking about uh, the conception. How do we know that? Look what he says. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Now we talked about the intellectual capacity and the moral capacity of humanity. Moral capacity is just the, the idea of right and wrong. So there is a nature that we, we've been given and an understanding and awareness of our, of our moral condition. And here's what David is acknowledging, that, that this, this moral position that he has as a sinner was his in the womb. This is a personhood reference here. When at conception, morally, this was the category that I was in. Here's Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your books were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet one of them came to be. Now listen to this, follow what he's saying here. The psalmist is acknowledging that in the womb he was being knitted together. He's acknowledging that God's intimate involvement with him while he was in the womb, that God's design and God's plans were being worked out into his life, that everything that makes him him, he is because of the work that God was doing in forming him while still in the womb. Jeremiah chapter one, verse four. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb. Again, don't forget this, Psalm 139 and Jeremiah is a reference to uh, formed in the womb. God is at work in the womb. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated. In other words, while you were still in the womb, I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The Bible could not be more clear on this subject. Life begins at conception. You say, well, okay, so, okay, I get that. I'm a Christian. But, but what about the non-Christians who don't believe in the Bible? Or some of you may be skeptics in here. Like, okay, of course, you're gonna have this position because the Bible says that, but I'm not a person of the Bible, and so you gotta show me in another way. Well, let me tell you, uh, science has caught up to what God's word has been saying for thousands and thousands of years. Like, literally, I could do a whole sermon 
with scientific evidence that life begins at conception and never speak one of my own words just by giving you quote after quote after quote after quote of some of the smartest brains in the, the world historically who talk about this subject with great detail. I'm gonna give you a couple of quotes here. In 1981, just under a decade after Roe versus Wade was decided, um, there was expert testimony given to the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee in, in he, about when life begins. That was the subject. Listen to one of them. It, it is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. Another testimony says this. The beginning of a single human uh, life is uh, from a biological point of view, a simple and straightforward matter. Beginning, the beginning is conception. So here's what the subcommittee uh, came to a conclusion of. Listen to what they said. Physicians, biologists, and other scientists agree that conception marks the beginning of life of a human being, a being that is alive and is a member of the human species. There is overwhelming agreement on this point in countless medical, biological, and scientific writings. Here's another one. Uh, one of the leading textbooks on embryology this says this, this is what it says, and listen to this. Human development begins at fertilization when a male gamete or sperm unites with a female gamete uh, in uh, oocyte ovum to form a single cell, a zygote. This highly specialized uh, totipotent cell marked the beginning of each one of us in a, as unique individuals. Now listen, this here is the leading, or one of the leading Textbooks being taught on the subject of embryology, verifying very clear life begins at conception. Peter Singer, by the way, Peter Singer, so you say, well, you're probably quoting all conservatives, uh, you know, scientists. Peter Singer is a man who believes in partial not only elective abortions, but partial birth abortions and even the termination of some babies after birth. Here's what he says. It is possible to give human, uh, give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as equivalent to members of the species Homo sapiens. Whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes in the cells of a living organism. In this sense, there is no doubt from the first moment of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and egg is a human being. Listen to what one other lady said, Sarah uh, Terzo, she says this, science teaches us without reservation that life begins at conception. It is a scientific fact that an uh, organism exists after conception that did not exist before conception. This new organism has its own DNA distinct from the mother and the father, meaning that it is, a, is neither a part of the mother nor a part of the father. As the embryo grows, it develops a heartbeat 22 days after conception, its own circulatory system with its own organs from conception it is a new organism that is alive and will continue to grow and develop as long as nutrition is provided and its life is not ended through violence or illness. Hear me say this. Science and the scriptures could not be more clear. All human life begins at conception. We have to stop the foolishness of re-terming things and renaming things and, and trying to take the humanity out of this issue. All human life is valuable and all human life begins at conception. And here's what this means. Listen, which, which means that all human life has intrinsic value because we're creating the image of God and that it also is for those who are still in the womb. Babies in the womb have intrinsic value and they are equally deserving of the same rights, respect, and dignity of any other human being. Period. It should be the end of discussion, but it's not. 
Our value, listen to me, has nothing to do with our age, our gender, our ethnicity, our intellectual capacity, our mental development, our accomplishments, or whether or not we're still in the womb or not. Our value is found in the Imago Dei. Unless we are gonna come to some crazy people where utilitarianism becomes our viewpoint in the world. See, what is utilitarianism? It's the idea that someone's value is based upon their usefulness, which is why many argue that, that a woman, even though she is carrying an, a human within her, should have the right to terminate that life because we've, we've, we've classified her life as more valuable. And listen, that's a slippery slope in a dangerous place. Where do you stop it? If we're viewing someone's one's value based upon their usefulness, where does that stop? To listen to what one man says about this. Jared Wilson, the great theologian, says this. He says, the biblical grounds for the sacredness of human life has nothing to do with the person's usefulness to a family or a society. The Bible calls us to a pro-life position based on the reality that all persons are made in the image of God, that God has created us equal, and that therefore all life is precious, whether the person cures cancer or gets cancer, wins an Olympic medal or a Special Olympics medal, can compose like Mozart or sing like Roseanne Barr. All life is valuable. And hear me say this, see why is this so important? This truth plays itself out in a thousand different ways. It plays itself out in a thousand different ways. Injustice, murder, racism, sex trafficking, slavery, caring for the homeless, child abuse, caring for people with special needs. All of this is under the banner of the Imago Dei. Every person has value. Every person has value. This is the foundation for pro-life. And listen to me, the foundation for pro-life is both in the womb and outside the womb. So let me just help you. Fighting against racism is a pro-life position. Fighting against injustice is a pro-life position. Fighting against poverty is a pro-life position. Caring for the marginalized in our community is a pro-life position. Why? All life matters. Life begins at conception. Therefore, all human life should be fought for, should be cared for. Both inside the womb and outside the womb. This is why we seek justice. This is why we care for the weak. This is why we stand against racism. This is why we care for orphans and adopt babies. This is why we defend the unborn. Because their value and dignity is deserved because we are created in the image of God. This is why, listen, we must stand and fight for justice for the marginalized, for the vulnerable in our society. And hear me say this, no one is more marginalized and vulnerable in our culture than unborn babies. So for those in the room, let me just say lovingly to you, for those in the room who wanna skirt around this issue because you're focusing on other parts of social issues, listen, I'm not saying that we should not focus on people outside of the womb. In fact, the church has and should and has a greater opportunity in the future to do that. But to turn an eye away from the reality that the most vulnerable in our culture and society are babies that have yet to be born, period. It's not even a close second. Why? Because they're helpless and they're voiceless. They're helpless and they're voiceless. And let me tell you, if, 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 the, if the basic human rights that, that I deserve does not apply to a baby in the womb, then what we're doing, whether we like it or not, is we are lowering the value of another human. And that's evil. That's evil. So, here's the problem. The problem is, is that we're living in a culture right now, and it just blows my mind, that rather than looking 
at these truths, we want to misrepresent the subject. We want to fill social media and the network news stations with misinformation, with outright lies about this subject. We want to, get to, to take the subject and just, just feed cultural ideology. And, and rather than dealing with this subject, what we do is we skirt in our culture around it all. And here's the problem with this. Listen, there are so many Christians that are confused and kind of floating through culture right now, not knowing what to do on this particular subject. It's because we've lost our ability to have common logic and reasoning. As Christians, by and large, theological and logical arguments are gone. We don't know how to process things anymore. And here's the thing. I understand this is, not a, this is a complex issue. Because we live in the, what about this? Or what if this happens? Or what about this situation? What about that situation culture? And what happens is, is that we use all of those what if scenarios to try to justify this. When we, we just stop and we process theologically and logically, what we would realize is that yes, this is complex, but there has to be some sort of a baseline truth that we work through complex issues from. And in a lot of education there's this concept called first principles. Matt Chandler talks a lot about this. The same idea of first principles is what we would know as foundational premise. So what is foundational premise? Foundational premise, so th- th- I, want, I really want you to tune in for a moment. It'll help you logically work through this. Foundational premise is this idea that whenever you're working through complex moral issues that has all, all of these what ifs, ands, and, and, and nuances, You've got to establish what is your foundational premise? What, what is the premise that we, we rest on and say, okay, we got to work from, from that. It's, 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 it's like a foundation that we're building this, this ethic on. And without that foundation, all the nuances can, can lead us to some pretty dangerous conclusions. So I'm not saying to you that this, this is not a complex issue, but I do believe it's more simple than we give it credit for when we just have a foundational premise that go, okay, this is where, this is where we start. Let me, let me show you what I mean. I'm going to build this out. This, and I say foundational premise. It's, it's, it's fundamental premise, which becomes a foundation for us. Let me show you how this reasoning works based upon what I already showed you from the scripture. All human life is infinite value, therefore worthy of respect, right? And, and, and all life begins at conception. All human life begins at conception. Okay, so let me show you how establishing this fundamental premise works to help us work out the complexity of the moral ethical uh, dilemma. Let me, let me show this on this grid here. So let's start first of all with this, this first block here. This is, this is the conclusion we came to. All human life has intrinsic value. We've seen this in scripture. All humanity is created in the image of God. Amen. And because of that, there is value that is stamped on the soul of humanity. Now, here's the thing. I think even the secular world, I don't believe the Bible would come to this conclusion that humanity has. This whole idea of justice in our nation and social activism is built upon this premise. It's equality, right? And inequality rests in the fact that all of humanity has a value and a dignity and is deserving of justice, Right? and equality. So we would agree on this. So here's what that simply means. So here's the second block I want you to see. Taking the life of an innocent human is morally wrong. Why is this true? Everybody say this is true, right? Amen? Why is this true? Here's why. All human life has intrinsic value. So listen, do you realize both our government structure and the Bible agree on this? This is why we have laws in our nation that you just can't go kill people, right? Anybody thankful for that? Well, why do we have those laws in place? Because somewhere hardwired in to the soul of humanity is this idea that life is valuable. And therefore we have laws. So we believe this so much that the Bible and our structure, we even have consequences if you take an innocent human's life on accident. Manslaughter. You didn't mean to, but there's still gonna be repercussions for it. Why? Because all human life has intrinsic value. Therefore, taking the life of an innocent human is morally wrong. So to say, well, how does this play itself out in abortion? Let's go to the third block here. An unborn baby is a human. We've established this, right? So by the way, you can work from, from um, left to right 
You can work it from top to bottom, both of these. I'm just showing you logically how do we come to this, 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 this premise, this foundation that we work out all of the other complexities of this issue. So all human life is intrinsic value. Therefore, listen, taking the life of an innocent human is morally wrong. How does this fit into the su- subject of abortion? An unborn baby is a human. And listen, science and the Bible agree on this. So whatever position you're coming from, you either have to ignore science or ignore the Bible or ignore both of them to not come to this conclusion. Listen, and here's what we call that. We call that ignorance. So let's go to the logical conclusion. Number four, abortion is taking the life of an innocent human. You follow the logic here? All human life is intrinsic value. Taking the life of an innocent human is morally wrong. An unborn baby is a human. Therefore, abortion is taking the life of an innocent human. You say, well, what does this mean? It means that our culture has become cold and calloused. I'm going to show this to you. I want you to listen to this. Elizabeth, Mary Elizabeth Williams uh, she wrote an article called, So What If Abortion Ends Life? Here's what she writes. Yet I know throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. So we're not even pretending, we're not even pretending, go back to the grid. We're not even pretending anymore that this isn't true. We're just saying, listen, we're justifying this. Abortion is taking the life of an innocent human. And according to so many people who are pro-choice in our nation, they ignore science and ignore moral and ethics and are willing to say this is okay. This is dangerous. So again, follow the logic. All human life is intrinsic value. Taking the life of an innocent human is morally wrong. Fits into abortion, an unborn baby is a human. Abortions take the life of an innocent human. And so, okay, so how does that, what does that mean? Uh, And why does that matter? Here's why that matters. It's the fifth grid. An unborn baby has intrinsic value. So I want you to see this again. You can follow this logic from top to bottom, or you can work through it like I'm working through it. And here's the conclusion you come to. Listen, All human life is intrinsically value. An unborn baby is a human. An unborn baby has intrinsic value. And because these two statements are true, taking the life of an innocent human is is morally wrong, and abortion takes the life of an innocent human, here's the conclusion we come to. Abortion is morally wrong. And all I've done, listen, we all agree on this, amen? Amen? We all agree on this. Science verifies this, so does the scripture. So we, listen, we can ignore science, ignore the scripture, but let's just, for the sake of just working this out, we can't, we we can ignore it, but we can't deny it. So this is true, right? Which means that's actually what abortion is. And because that's actually what abortion is, and because this is true of an unborn baby, we have to come to this conclusion if we're gonna think logically about a subject. So let me give you a foundational, let me give, give you the, the, the premise, let me give you the statement, the fundamental premise statement. So here's, and listen, as believers, oh, so let me go to this one first. Go, go, go back to that one. I, I missed that quote because I think this is important to see this. Here's what one of the leading scientists we've had, she just passed away recently. This is what she says about this. We know from embryology that a new life begins with the formation of a zygote that self, uh, zygote, the cell formed from the union of egg and sperm in fertilization, this is scientifically fact, not religious doctrine. Okay, she goes on to say, what makes us human is not our looks, our mental attributes, but the human chromosomes and genes which we have in our cells from the zygote stage. In other words, so if you're 80 years old in the room, everything that makes you who you are at 80, you had and you possess at the moment of conception. But in the development stage, as a human, 
You, you, you have yet to develop fully. And I would say to you, this the same is true for a four-year-old and a 12-year-old and a 19-year-old. So, so understand, this is, this is what she's saying. Look, all of who makes you who you are was present at conception. And this is what she says. We should not condone killing a member of our species even for a good reason. Why? Because it's morally wrong. So let me give you the premise here. The fundamental premise statement. So again, if we're working out complex issues, we've gotta have a fundamental premise that we work from. Based upon the grid, I just put together, let me give you a statement. Abortion is morally and biblically wrong because it takes the life of an innocent human which violates the truth that every person is valuable. Now, I was right here just for a second. This becomes the grid. This becomes the lens. So yes, is the subject of abortion complex because of all the nuances about what about this and what about this and what about this, but we have to come back to some sort of fundamental premise that we go, okay, be logically working through what we know. All life is valuable. Taking the life of an innocent human is morally wrong. Life begins at conception. So therefore, terminating the pregnancy or terminating a life in the womb, right? That's what abortion does. Because a baby in the womb has value, abortion is morally wrong, which simply means abortion is morally wrong because it takes the life of an innocent human, which violates a premise that we all agree, agree upon. Are, are you following me here? And here's, I know what we're gonna do with this. I know what culture's gonna do with this. Let's just, let's just trace the rabbit trail. Let's just get on the red herring arguments where we, we kind of just dodge the, this issue here of having some sort of fundamental premise. And by the way, you could take this statement and you could apply other social issues. And it'd work out. This is, so put, put racism in here, change a couple of little words in here that doesn't change the structure, and, and it all comes down to this, this truth right here. So we can work out all of the complexities of social issues with just having a little bit of logic when it comes to processing these things. So here's the question. So what about in the issues of rape and incest? And let me just say this from the very beginning. That is horrible. And no human should ever go through the pain of rape or some sort of forced or not forced incestual relationship. It's awful, but can I just remind you that that, that accounts in our nation for less than 2% of all abortions that occur. 1.5, around 1.5 of abortions in, in America, and that's it's probably estimating on the high end, are because of rape and incest, those areas combined. But let me ask you this question, in, in, this, in, the, in those horrible issues that, that deserve care and deserve attention and deserve love and nurture and to care for any person who is a victim of this with great tender, tenderness and love and compassion, let me ask you this question in sincerity. But even if a baby is conceived in those situations, the human life that has been a byproduct of that incident, does that mean this doesn't apply to them? Does that eliminate the fundamental premise? And God help us if we say yes. I've got a close friend who've welcomed um, a child into their family who was the byproduct of rape. Adopted this new addition to their family, have watched this child grow up, makes great grades, makes the room light up great athlete, brings so much joy. Anything was none of those things. But that's the life that he's getting to live. His mother has found healing in his life. Are you telling me that he should not have the right to live? That this doesn't apply to him just because of the sin of his father? When it comes to the issue of a woman's life in jeopardy, and again, another horrific situation that deserves compassion and care when a woman's life is in jeopardy. Can I just remind you again, statistically speaking, that's around 1% of all abortions is because the woman's life in jeopardy. Now, here's where the, 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 the culture will change and, and shift things around. They'll use the phrase health concerns, which then anything goes underneath that. That's how they raise the statistics. 
When it comes to, to, to a woman's life in jeopardy, if she continues to carry this baby, less than 1% of all abortions in America is a result of that. But again, l- l- let me ask you this question. So even in the situation like that where the w- mother's life could potentially be in risk, let's just be honest, that doctors are not always right. Would you agree with that? You've been to a doctor? And I love all the doctors in my life. They get it wrong. So, so, but, but here's the question. Even in that situation, does this not apply to the baby in the womb? Are they, are they stripped of this? And so we, we live in a culture where we're trying to build the system. And here right now, the argument is we're going to have all these mothers dying now because they can't have rights to abortion. By the way, there are medical procedures and there are, are, are provisions for someone in this type of situation in our nation. And those aren't going away. But here's the, here's the thing. Like where, where is this idea of motherly instinct so just think about this for a second. If my wife and my daughter were walking down the street and there was a car that was out of control and was heading straight toward them and, and so my wife felt like she, her life was in danger and so what she do to try to get out of the way? She knocks her daughter, one of my kids, into the oncoming traffic and she gets hit by, and my wife saves herself. Would we be singing praises to her? Because she was spared at the expense of her child? No, we would be looking at that mother like, how could, any, how could any mother do this? But what if she says, I pushed my child out of the way and even all of a sudden we're at this woman's funeral, what are we doing? What heroic action? Why, because there's value in that child. And so if that would apply to situations outside of the womb, why would it not apply to situations inside of the womb? Here's another one, broken system. We got a broken system. This is what I've been hearing all week long from people. Broken system. How can you be pro-life and, and be uh, you know, uh, happy that abortion, because we got a broken system. It's now gonna be overloaded with more foster kids and more kids in need of adoption. So let me just look at you straight in the face and say this. I agree with you. The system's broken. The system is absolutely broken. I've got family and friends that I've walked through, go through the process of adoption and fostering, and I'm telling you, the system is broken. But here's the question. Does a broken system eliminate this? So listen, we're gonna jump to the conclusion that we should legalize the ending of an innocent human life and have it as morally acceptable just because we have too many children in a system that's broken. How about this? How about we fix the system? How about we fix the system? And this is, this is, the, this is the crazy thing. Believers, I want you to be informed here. The, the crazy nonsense that's being spewed in lies about Christians in our nation, that Christians only care about life in the womb. Do you realize that Christian families are two times more likely to adopt kids in need of a home than non-Christians in America? We give exponentially according to statistics facts and data. We give exponentially more money than non-Christians to charity and to poverty needs and to caring for mothers and children. When you look at the number of adoption and foster and, and, and pregnancy care centers that are built upon Christian principles and the dollars that are sacrificed, there is far more of those organizations than there are government-based organizations that just want to terminate life. And by the way, Let's just let's look at the numbers. Planned, uh, 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 Parenthood is labeled as a nonprofit organization that generates $1.6 billion a year. And according to studies, about 90% of their revenue is from abortions. And you want to talk about broken systems. How, how come it is this? If we want to start pointing fingers at Christians, how come it's $450 for a person to go and get an abortion or free, and it's twenty to 40000 to adopt a baby? There are far more families wanting to adopt and wanting to open their own home up and embrace these children in their homes. And the majority of them in America are Christian families, but because of the red tape of all the things you have to jump through and the amount of money, what we're saying is, is that we will terminate a life for $400, but if you wanna save a life and preserve a life, that's gonna be 20 to 40 grand. You know why? 
It's because the abortion industry is a nonprofit profitable industry. And it is not profitable for abortion clinics to have adoption as uh, affordable for most Americans. Why? Because the system would fix itself. And that goes away. Born into poverty. Too many babies born into poverty. Let me ask you a question. Is, is a child in the inner city of Chicago who's categorized in the low income, is he less valuable or she less valuable? Does this not apply to that person? Where now we're saying that a person should have a right to live if they can live up to a certain standard. By the way, when does that end? If we can justify killing a baby in the womb, recognizing that it is a baby in the womb, human, human sinfulness runs one direction. It's further and further away from God. What about when poverty becomes such a problem in our nation and we decide that even those who are outside of the womb, should, life should be taken because of this? Oh, it'll never happen. And yet we're justifying it in the womb. It will happen. What about a mother's right to choose? And I'm gonna say something very controversial here. Listen to me, moms. I, I don't even wanna begin to know what you go through in the process of giving birth. But based upon science, the baby inside of a mother's womb is not the body of the mother. The body within the body is not the mother's body. That baby is being housed in the body of the mother. That baby has its own DNA, its own organs, its own feelings, emotions, Sensations of pain and joy. Therefore, listen, we, we've got to stop this nonsense. Mother's right to choose because you can choose what she wants to do with her own body. Listen, in, in our culture, there are a lot of restrictions what we can and can't do with our body based upon its implication in the life of another person. I can't just walk up to you and punch you in the face. My body, my choice. No, but your body now impacted my body. Therefore, you have limited to what you can do with your body. Why? Because at the end of the day, fundamentally, here, here's what we gotta recognize. The body inside the mother is not the mother's body. And listen to this. This, this, this is what really summarizes it. I want you to listen to Greg Kokel. Listen to this. He says, abortion involves killing and discarding something that is alive, whether it's right or not, to take the life of any living being depends entirely upon the answer to one question, what kind of a being is it? The answer one gives is pivotal. The deciding element that trumps all other considerations, let me put the issue plainly. If the unborn baby is, a human, is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human, no justification for abortion is adequate. Why? Because we have a fundamental premise and that fundamental premise helps us work out also. I'm not saying it's not complex. Here's what I am saying. We gotta take abortion off the table as one of the solutions to the complex issues. Is there special care? Is there special concern? Is there extra compassion? Is there, there's, there's something that needs to be done in every single one of these? Yes, but we have to, based upon the fundamental premise, take abortion off the table as a viable option if we are going to have any kind of moral ethic in regards to human life whatsoever, period. Now here's the thing. I know for some of you in the room, this is heavy and this is hard. And I know some of you had journeys that have led you to a place where you have made the choice. And I want you to know my heart breaks for you. And I want you to know that God's grace and mercy, some of you feel like you have out God's grace and I'm telling you right now, his grace is greater than your sin. And I'm gonna invite someone on stage, I wanna invite one of our elders and his wife to come and tell their story of redemption. This is a man and a woman who serve our church as, as an elder, as a pastor, and as a pastor's wife. And they are a living testimony of the grace of God that's available even, even in this issue of abortion. I'm gonna ask you to welcome Jason, Jason and Casey Withrow to the stage.
Good morning. <clears throat> this morning, I want to share with you my story of abortion and how God so gracious, graciously met me in my despair. For the longest time, I came to church with a smile on my face, hoping I looked like I had it all together. But deep down, I had a secret, a secret that I had been carrying around for 11 years. And because of that secret, heavy chains of tremendous guilt and shame began to weigh me down. My husband and I met in college. <clears throat> we had been dating for a couple of years and had recently gotten engaged. I was currently living at home with my parents who had been heavily involved in church my whole life. My dad was even a deacon and we were at church every time the doors were open. So you can imagine my fear and embarrassment when I found out I was pregnant. I panicked and made the decision to have an abortion. I felt that by doing this, no one would ever have to know and everything would be back to normal. Jason and I could get married and it would be as if nothing ever happened. But it was not long before I realized I had made a terrible mistake. I thought I would feel relieved, but that couldn't have been further from the truth. After we got married, I continued to battle with guilt, shame, and tremendous grief over what I had done. My heart ached and I longed for that precious baby. I was so desperate to tell someone else about it, but feared I would face rejection and judgment. I was completely ashamed in my despair Grief and guilt grew <clears throat> with every year. Of course, I knew about God's forgiveness and I believed it. But I began to think that maybe I had committed the unforgivable sin. I believed my sin was in a class of its own beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. I had asked God for forgiveness probably more than a hundred times. But deep down, I hated myself for what I did. And I believe God was still angry with me too. I finally came across a Bible study on abortion and grief recovery. And through this study, the Lord showed me his true character. I was so relieved to find that God's purpose for sacrificing his son on the cross was for people like me, who saw no hope or chance for forgiveness. After reading scripture after scripture, of his amazing grace and unfailing love, I finally realized that God still loved and cared for me. I learned that sometimes we think that struggles caused by our own sin and foolishness are not God's concern. But when we turn to God in repentance, he will bear the weight even of those struggles. Psalm 103, 8 through 13 says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now the enemy wants to wound us and keep us in bondage, making us feel as though we are all alone. I remember being so hesitant to talk to anyone about my struggle because I thought no one would understand. But taking that step was one of the best decisions I ever made. A part of my healing actually began when I started confiding in those I trusted. God has done an amazing work in me, turning my despair into hope and giving me a new purpose. I never would have thought after years of staying silent that I would end up telling my story publicly and later helping women through their own journey to healing. But that is just another testament to how our Lord works. I've had the opportunity to see many post-abortive women find freedom from their guilt and shame through a Bible study we offer here at New Beginnings. It's called Surrendering the Secret, which is designed to restore 
and heal those who have been broken by abortion. The primary focus is on the Bible and God's promises and truth, which brings about healing, redemption, and restoration. If you're interested in the study or you just need someone to talk to, myself and a friend who has also experienced this will be at a table in the foyer to answer any questions you may have. You guys thank Casey and Jason for being willing to share. What a powerful story. And I know there are some of you in this room and that your story is very similar to Casey's story. I want you to know that there is healing when you bring that experience into the light and you find that the gospel is enough for you. And if that is where you are, I want you to know that New Beginnings, while we have conviction about this subject, we have compassion and want to walk with you toward healing. And so if you feel any of that shame, I want you to leave with this. Jesus loves you. And the same Jesus that met Casey and has restored her is the same Jesus that will meet you and restore you. And I would encourage you, come and join that Bible study and begin that journey. For those of you in the room that wherever you are, on this, listen, we all have work to do. We all have work to do. Listen, what would it look like for us to adopt more children? What would it look like for us to have our homes opened up for foster care? What would it look like for us to partner with other pregnancy centers that are pro-life and begin to invest dollars and invest time and love on these mothers? What would it look for us like for us and Greg in Upshur County for New Beginnings Baptist Church and say, you know what? The system might be broken, but it doesn't have to be broken here because New Beginnings Baptist Church is going to be a light. Listen, it's not just a good idea. We have a spiritual obligation to step into the space. And I want some of you, some of you need to be praying. You, your heart is already being stirred to adopt or to foster or to be a respite care provider for foster families. Here's what I'm gonna get you to do. As we conclude our service, I want you to grab your phone right now and I want you to, to scroll over the QR code in the back of the seat. And what you're gonna find there is you're gonna find a link that's gonna give you a uh, document, the FAQ document of how you can get involved right here. We have some classes that we're gonna host in the next few weeks. We have a Bible study for Centering the Secret. We got foster training and things like that we're gonna be hosting here. I want you to get that PDF. So before you leave, make sure you click and you get that uh, QR code so that you can be informed with more information of ways that you can get involved and we can work together to care for not just unborn children, but for families once those children are born. Amen? I want you to be equipped today. And I want you to walk in compassion, love, and mercy knowing that Jesus is enough. Amen? Let me pray for us and we're dismissed. Father, I love you and I ask now in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we would just leave God in the grace and mercy of Jesus with our minds anchored in your truth. And Lord, maybe work from this, this uh, fundamental premise as we engage in conversation in our community. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And God's people said.